Our youth are upstairs tonight. It is a great space. And for those of you who have helped to make that happen, thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless you. God is going to do some amazing things by making space for our kids to stand. Somebody say amen to that. I love naps. I'm telling you, and and naps and dream dreams and old men, I know it all goes together, but I tell you, the older I get, the more I love a nap. I got to tell you, I may take one right now. All right. Tonight, I want to land the plane on our series of knowing God and finish what I was speaking about last week of knowing God transformed, known, and shown. We've learned that the goal of God is simply to make himself known. And the primary way that he does that is through you and me. Is that all of a sudden now, folk that are around us realize, I'm not just seeing John, I'm not just seeing Jim, but I'm seeing somebody else. And hopefully it's not the devil. Folk that maybe haven't seen you since the last high school reunion See something that's different going on in and on your life. This is how God wants to make himself known. And he can do it in all kinds of different ways if we've learned over the past few months. We've looked at a text, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We learned that our health and our freedom and our wealth is not the product but the byproducts of a relationship. The product is the complete transformation of restoration to that which he designed from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, in his image, God made them what? Male and female. And this doctrine, this theological principle that we know is imago Dei, simply means the image of God. To say that humans are made in the image of God is to recognize that there's certain things that God can impart uniquely to humans that he does not impart to fish or impart to dogs and cats and trees and everything else in his creation. John Calvin, one of the two great reformers, one of the architects of the Protestant Reformation, says it this way, The design of the gospel is the image of God which had been defaced by sin may be repaired within us. And the progress of this restoration is continuous through the whole of life because it's little by little that God causes his glory to shine forth in us. Colossians says that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. He speaks of a circumcision, not done by the hands of man, but by God himself. And circumcision always speaks to the taking off of something, the lessening of something. It's the less is more principle, which runs so counter to everything that most of us in the West are inculcated with. The advertising industry that's been screaming at us for the last hundred years, telling us that more is better. 
and how much of the world spirit of the age is now in the church and we have conscripted that same message that says somehow more is always better. It's not just about the right things, it's about more of whatever it is. How many of you know that that's not really the gospel at all? That God is about refining and defining and editing our life and getting us down that he is that pearl of great price. That we're willing to sell everything that we've got to have that treasure. And we, this is just a review from last week, we've moved from the one to the many where it was just Moses. And then glory fading as he stepped out of that presence of being with God. But we have a glory now that God never intends to fade. And bringing many sons to glory, it says in Hebrews 2. We move from just glancing to gazing. That we who with unveiled faces, it begins with God removing the veil from our life whereby which we could not see. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, what does it say? The veil is taken away. Christ himself removes that which has kept us from being able to see him. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Can I submit to you that that's probably the most misused, abused, and worse eisegeted scripture in the New Testament. We love it because we can write all kinds of little charismatic Pentecostal ditties to that. But it's not just the freedom. Oh, I'm the, the freedom from something, the freedom to something. No, it is the freedom to see somebody now that you couldn't see before. That's what the passage of Scripture means. We've written all kinds of things on it because it sounds so good. But it's the freedom to see. Whereby before we were in bondage and we could not see because of the veil that was before our eyes. It's the freedom to now gaze upon. Moses. He just got a glimpse of God's passing glory. The Mount of Transfiguration. Some of the disciples up there with Jesus saw something of God's glory, and he was there with Moses and Elijah. I mean, it was quite a gathering. And yet Jesus was the only one in that moment who was completely changed in front of their eyes. They got a glimpse of the glory of God, and Moses and Elijah disappeared But when it was all said and done, Jesus was still there. What were these disciples seeing? Peter and John both record later that they saw the glory of God. Jesus wanted them to get a picture, a snapshot, if you wish, knowing that what they were about to experience and see with natural eyes in the coming days, they needed to see something of who this Christ really was. And on that Mount of Transfiguration, gave them a glimpse of that which they would spend eternity gazing into. 
They needed that moment. Stephen, in the midst of being stoned, heaven opens and he saw the glory of God. Do you realize when we gaze on the glory of God, that the temporal stuff, even if it's being, if we're being stoned to death, all of a sudden it doesn't make any difference. And when Stephen began to reveal something happened to Stephen, they saw something's happening to this guy. It says their fury was unleashed all the more. Why? Because they realized this man has something we don't have. This man is participating in something in this moment. And we're doing everything we can to ruin and end his life. And yet he is having this amazing, glorious experience, beholding the glory of God. Many of us are gazing at the wrong things. An artist who's painting is continually glancing up and get, he's, got to, he's got it memorized. What is he trying to reproduce with either ink or paint? And he gazes at it. He gets a, an understanding of the light and the reflections and the color and everything that he needs. And then what does he do after he's got it etched into his mind? He continues to do what? Look up at it. To be sure that what he's reproducing is as close to the original as possible. This is how an artist creates or recreates an image. Gazing and continuing to gaze upon. And then we move from just sensing to seeing. Israel stood at the entrance to their tents and they watched Moses go in. They could sense something. They could see the cloud come down. Israel sensed, but Moses saw. And we've adopted and adapted this language even in our ecclesiastical vernacular now of I sense God, I, I sense this and I sense that and there's nothing wrong with that language, but what would happen if we move from just sensing the Lord to truly seeing the Lord? I don't know about you, but, you know, all of the sort of the, the, ooh, the little goose pumps that we get and little hairs that stand up. I've only got four left, but that stand up on the back of our heads. And, you know, oh, I think I feel a little something, something right here. And, you know, is, is that feather that was, is that, that, was that from my pillow or was that a molting angel? What, I mean, what's happening here? whereby which we sense something, but yet God never intended that we would just sense something from a distance, but that now that, remember, the veil has been torn so that what we can see. And it's in this seeing that will allow our discipleship to be perfected. What do I mean by that? John 5, 19, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He goes on, he says what? He can only do what he sees his father in heaven doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Might that be our pattern of discipleship? Ephesians 5, 17 says, don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Henry Blackaby wrote a book many years ago. Some of you may remember it called Experiencing God. Very simple premise of the book. Find out what God is doing and go do it with him. No more complicated than that. No words like destiny. No words like actualization. No therapeutic language. Find out what God is doing and go do it with him. Can I say to you, that is exactly how Jesus related to the Father in the limitations of flesh. That's the world's longest review. But tonight I want to move to part two. I'm just titling this from technique to transformation. Let me read this paraphrase of our passage again. We are all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transfigured to the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord by the operation of the Holy Spirit. This is the way we become like him. The measure in which we are filled with the Spirit is the measure in which we are thus occupied with Christ. They're one in the same. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, speaks of to to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We know this passage. Verse 20, And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's another favorite Pentecostal passage, is it not? I mean, you can get your happy Hebrew hop on on that one. You know, ha! You know, you just. I mean, we 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 like that one. Oh yeah, woo! Verse twenty-one. Please keep reading. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Again. We quote the first, we we quote verse 20, but we don't ever tie it to verse 21 as to what is this whole thing trying to produce? What is is all of this immeasurably more? I mean, we just see our bank accounts getting bigger. And yet, what did I fail to ask for? Because I'm going to get me some of that too. To realizing what is the real outworking of this? What? To him be glory in the church. Mm, You ain't got it yet, but just stay with me. You will for it's over with. But if we define this as the goal, the transformational process that he might be glorified in and through us, then it begs the question, then why isn't it happening? Why am I not a participant of that glory? One, perhaps we don't believe in the process. Faith. Of who God is and what God has said God would do. We've got to believe that there is a process whereby which God himself will take us through it. Secondly, we've got to participate in the process. That's obedience. But then thirdly, Many of us haven't yet fully died. And that's simply pride. 
that we still feel like there's something in our lives that we can produce something of enough excellence. We can produce something of, 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 of some divine nature that will somehow get up there and compete in that realm. Ladies and gentlemen, the only answer for that is for you to die. And I'm not talking about a physical death yet. But there is a death that we are to carry around with us that whereby which we can experience the resurrection life of God. You know, we all want life. We don't want death. But here's the kingdom principle is that resurrection always comes after death. And God is not afraid of death the way you and I are because he knows what's on the other side. Hmm. Colossians 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here's the tension. The tension is you are now hidden with and yet we also will appear. And we live in the tension between these two realms. Congratulations. Join the club. But there's a process of how this transformation works. We find part of it in the 8th chapter of Romans, verses 29 through 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also did what? Glorified. What is the process? The first is revelation. This is, if you wish, the prelude. It's a divine action. It allows us to see. It allows us to see. This is the prelude to the process. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot See the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We got a spiritual problem. It's a problem that just debating somebody into salvation will not cure. They can't see it. And maybe you've been trying to argue your coworker or maybe a family member or maybe somebody in your neighborhood into the kingdom. The problem is they're blinded. They can't see what you now see. They can't hear what you now hear. Why? Because Christ has come and he's removed the veil that you can see. It begins with revelation. This revelation allows us to see who he is. And what we are not. And the collusion between those two things creates a crisis. I hope you had a crisis coming into salvation. And one of the greatest evangelistic sermons, if not the greatest ever preached 
You murdered God. How are you getting out of that? What is the penalty for killing God? It says they were cut to the heart. What must we do? Let me just tell you, a crisis will occur right there in that moment whereby repentance is prompted and regeneration can now begin to propagate in a man or a woman's heart. But it begins with crisis. I'm concerned when a man or a woman makes a decision for Christ outside of crisis. And I'm not talking about just a crisis of how they've blown up their life and they want to be raptured out of their circumstance or their pain. I'm talking about a crisis that says, oh my God. Like the prophet said, I'm unclean man, unclean lips. Woe to me. Many people are lightly saved. Because they've never had this crisis. And we wonder why many times their discipleship is so shallow. Because they've never had this revelation cut them to the very quick. It begins with revelation. Second is justification. It's what we already are. That's the product. The third is sanctification is what we're not yet but becoming. This is the mystery of the process. And then glorification is that moment where the image imprint is completed in our life. This is glorification. Theologian named Philip Hughes writes this way. In justification through faith into Christ, the sinner is accepted, who himself is the pure and perfect image of God. Christ is the perfect image of God. And that divine image is freely imputed to the believer. In sanctification through the operation of the Holy Spirit, who enables the believer constantly to behold the glory of the Lord, that image is increasingly imparted. Listen to the difference in those words. Justification is imputed. Sanctification and the ongoing image of Christ is continually imparted to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in glorification, justification and sanctification become complete in one. For that image is then finally impressed upon the redeemed in unobscured fullness to the glory of God throughout eternity. And it's in this transformation, all that is God is heretofore transferred to us. Our ideas, our ideals are all subjugated to his. And some of the ways that we see this transformational process occur, and there are many, but I'll mention but three, because they are, if you wish, anthropomorphic. In other words, we can take what is a character and nature of God and we can understand it with a human frame of reference. Let's talk about God's thoughts and God's motivations and God's emotions for a moment. God's thoughts. 
Our transformation begins not just with right thinking, but God thinking. You know, there are a lot of people that they've got a lot of truth. Correct? I mean, if you've got a search engine, you can go get some truth. You can have the right moral base. The right ethical system by which you operate and have some truth. But it's not about right thinking. It's about God thinking. And there's a radical difference in the two things. Romans 12, 2, our proof text for this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed. The Greek word metamorpho here. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That word meta, the word changed, it means literally to change an outward form. And we don't find this word used anywhere in the Old Testament. So, well, the Old Testament's not in Greek. I understand that, but we don't find this word over there. We only find it used four times in the New. We find it used in this verse, Romans 12, 2. We find it used twice in the Gospels as it referred to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We've already referenced that passage tonight. And then it's used the fourth time in 2 Corinthians three eighteen, right here, the passage that we're studying together. It's the same word used in every one of these particular cases. And there's both change and exchange, ours for his. And our pleasing God most of the time is not what we think what pleases God. I used to fish. I was a lousy fisherman. Every fish I ever caught probably costs $500. But anybody that fishes knows it's not about the fish. It's about the boat and the gear anyway. We understand that. Sorry, ladies, you, you already knew it, but I'm just getting honest with you here tonight. And so you would go to the bait and the tackle shop or you go to Walmart or wherever and you would look at these shiny baits up on the wall. Ooh. And the light reflects and they wiggle and dance through the water, you know, and it's like... Ooh, $8, I'm, no, I'm, 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 ooh, I'm buying one of those. And we think, if I was a fish, I'd really like that. <laughs> and so you go out on the lake, and you put your $8 wiggly thing on there, and say, if I was a fish, I'd be all over that. And the fish are down there laughing. You have got to be kidding me. Who do they, who in the world does he think he's fooling with that thing? And yet we do the same thing with God all the time. Oh, God, I know you're going to like this. Listen to this song. Listen to this. You're going to like this. Oh, God, you're going to, oh, I got an extra fiber in the offering. You're going to like this. I know this is going to please you. Hmm. See, our pleasing God begins with the perfect revelation of his will revealed to us by our renewed mind 
Not just the prophet coming through and giving us a word about the will of God in our life, but it starts with a renewed mind. And then allowing his empowerment to enact that will. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. I won't read the whole passage for the sake of time. It says, but the man without the Spirit, he doesn't understand spiritual things. He doesn't get it. Spiritual things are the wrong language, and he doesn't have, he, he, he doesn't have an interpreter. And Paul goes on, who knows in the mind of Christ that he may instruct him? And then he, he hits us with this, but we have the mind of Christ. That's not right thinking. That's God thinking. That is God transplanting this thing of mush into something divine. I'm going to allow you to think the way that I think. Second Corinthians 10 talks about the weapons of warfare. Talks about every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What does it say? We take captive every thought to do what? Make it obedient to Christ. I've taught on spiritual warfare once or twice since I've been a Christian. Different war grounds of strategic level and, 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 second and, and, and the heavenlies and angels and demons and all. I mean, I've taught on this stuff. But you know what I've learned? The primary war ground for the believer is in their head. This is where it is, right here. Why? Because we don't have the mind of Christ. The world's most famous rebuke. Jesus to Peter. You don't have in mind the things of God, but what? The things of men. My goodness. Colossians goes on and it says, then you've been raised, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated and set your minds on things above. Set your mind. But it also says to set your hearts. Now we know that the heart, many, many, many contend that the heart is representational of the seat of the soul. Your emotions, your intellect, your will, regardless of where in your body it might be, is the heart. But Paul makes a distinction here in Colossians. It says, set your mind, but then he says, set your heart. So it's not just a matter then of our thinking. It now becomes a matter of our emotions. Pastor Steve Robinson did a masterful sermon a couple of weeks ago on depression. Powerful, it was personal, it was tremendous. And most of us have struggled, maybe not to the extent that he shared, but most of us have struggled with something along these lines. Maybe it's not depression, maybe it's anger. But I begin to ponder if God intends for me not only to have his mind. God intends for me to have his emotions as well. And then I begin to think, has God ever been depressed? Now, I don't mean that facetiously. And I'm not taking anything away from the realities of the gap 
of where we are in a process. Are you with me? I'm not negating anything Pastor Steve said. But having struggled in some of these emotional realms for most of my life, I begin to realize that a lot of it is simply I have not allowed a real transference of God's emotions to my emotions. Some of us have been taught to be suspect of emotions. Now, we're not led by emotions, and God is not led by emotions. God is led by God. God is led by God's foreknowledge and God's purposes. And yet, how many of you know that God has emotions? This is a theological sticking point for many. Some people say, well, God can't have emotions because if if God were to react to emotions, then God's will can be circumvented. Therefore, he wouldn't be God at all. That's a straw man. Because we are assuming that God displays emotions the same way that you and I display emotions. How many of you know that ain't the case at all? We're not led by our emotions. God has never been led by his emotions. And yet, we know that God loves. We heard some amazing messages about that. As a matter of fact, it's not just what God does, it's who God is. We know that God loves. We know that God hates. Do you realize you can hate and still be led by the Holy Ghost? God hates sin. God doesn't hate the sinner, but he hates sin. God hates what sin does to the image of himself in his children. He hates it. And could I submit to you that the other side of loving God is hating what God hates? Some of us are way too dispassionate about those things that are wrecking men's and women's lives. We're way too dispassionate about how the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. It says the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let me just tell you something. You better love like Christ loved, but you better hate like God hates. And you can be a sanctified hater. If. You hate the way God hates. God gets angry. He doesn't pop off. He doesn't flip off. He doesn't sound off. But God gets angry. Scripture doesn't tell us not to get angry. It says, in your anger, sin not. That's what the Bible says. Most of us, though, Hadn't quite been the transference there of the anger of God for the anger of man. All right. We know God grieves. God expresses joy. God rejoices. All of these things. And it's not just WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's WWFD, what would Jesus feel? How does Jesus feel about this? The woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. 
What was Jesus feeling in that moment? Compassion. And then we need God's motivations. And I just have to stop. But once we begin to think God's thoughts, begin to feel God's emotions, then our motivations can become His as well. John 8, Jesus says, I always do what pleases Him. There's the motivation of Jesus. I always do what pleases Him. And then once motivations become aligned with His, then our corresponding actions can both bring and reflect His glory. 2 Corinthians, it goes on here. It says, Christ's love compels us. And He died for all that those who live should no no longer live for themselves, but for Him. There it is. But for Him. Then I'll just mention this and close. Known, transformed, and shown. 1 John 4, 17, in this world, it says, we're like him. Accurate reflection and representation, not just an interpretation or a permutation of the original intent is what God has for you and me. Not that we would show some version of God. Well, this is how we do that because we're this denomination. Or this is how we reflect God because this is our theological bent or understanding. This is how, no, 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 no. God is looking for an uncracked mirror to reflect himself in the world. Shown. Second Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. But then it talks about that God has entrusted to you and to me the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. You know, an ambassador does not come and try to represent his nation in front of another nation and wing it. Everything about that nation, everything about the intent and the philosophy and the leadership of that nation, that ambassador, if he's a good one, does everything he can to accurately reflect that which he is representing. That's what an ambassador does. That's what God has called you and I to. Not just our interpretation in the moment, but God What is your motivation? What is your heart? What are your emotions about this? What are you saying? What is your mind? Not just my best guess at it. That God can be seen through the church. The ambassadorial role that he is uniquely given only to you and to me. I'll close with this. Alan Redpath in a book entitled Blessings Out of Buffetings, and I quote, I have a clear view of Jesus. I've seen him, felt him, and I've known him in a far deeper way than simply by the outward physical appearance. 
I felt the reality of his life begin to burn in my heart. I've seen in Christ the glory of a life that is totally submitted to the sovereignty of God. And that glory has begun to take hold of me. And I've begun to see that this is the one life that God expects of any man he made in his own image. I've seen the marks of the cross upon him, and by his grace, the marks of the cross have been put upon me. And I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price, redeemed by his precious blood. Yes, I've seen him, not in the outward physical sense only, but in the inward sense of a deep spiritual reality. I've had a clear view of Jesus, and my life will never be the same again. Jesus was preoccupied with the Father's glory. His preoccupation was his occupation. That we might become preoccupied with the occupation of God in our life and the reflection of his glory through his church. Pray with me.